2: Good afternoon and welcome everyone to today's episode of Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. We're deep into the fall, Thanksgiving is just a week away, and even here in sunny California, the weather has become colder and more blustery than usual. I'm not lying when I say I had to wear a jacket this morning on my way to the College Coach office here in Palo Alto. Uh, Frequent listeners will probably recognize my voice, but for those of you who are new to the program, my name is Ian Fisher, and I'll be guest hosting today's show. We have a great lineup of College Coach experts on the program today, and we'll be creating conversation around a variety of topics, Uh, But before I I get into that, I do want to ask listeners to complete a survey for us at the end of today's show. We want to know a little bit more about how we're reaching you and and whether we're giving you the topics that you're interested in. So if you can navigate yourself to www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey, it'd be really terrific to get some of your feedback about the show. And we'll give you access to a couple of our free guidebooks, um, Avoiding the Pitfalls of College Essay Writing, a lot of those pitfalls. Uh, And top 10 ways to find private scholarships. So again, www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey. As for today, um, for those of you who might be concerned that you won't qualify for need-based financial aid, you might be wondering whether it's still worth it to fill out the FAFSA. We'll discuss that in our final segment. And if you're a parent of a junior or even a senior who needs to boost his extracurricular profile at this stage in his high school career, We'll be sharing some tips for ways to improve your resume even late in the process. But first, I'd like to welcome to the show Christine Kenyon, my colleague and a former senior admissions officer. Welcome, Christine.
3: Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: Now, uh, you and I were both admissions officers for a number of years, you at Babson College, me at Reed College. And during that time, (laughs) uh, we each probably interacted with thousands of prospective students uh, and their parents. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And now that we're on the other side of the desk... I often hear families ask how they can create and leverage relationships with college admissions officers to help them in their own application process. Uh, Is that something that you find that you're being asked about with the families that you work with as well?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that a lot of families have that on their mind, and at the end of the day, students just want to make sure that they're doing all that they can to submit their best application. Um, And so, you know, I think for some institutions, particularly those that advocate for demonstration of interest, so who track uh, how connected an applicant has been with their institution throughout the application process, um, trying to create and form some of those relationships will be more important, um, certainly than those colleges that don't track demonstration of interest.
2: So demonstrated interest is a concept that I think Uh, over the last five or 10 years, has really become one of the more uh, talked about aspects of the college admissions process. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about what demonstrated interest really is and and how a student might uh, go about showing interest in a college?
3: Sure. So, I think that demonstration of interest is becoming more popular for a lot of institutions because it's a really great way for the colleges to gauge how sincerely interested a student is in that particular college or institution. So, as more and more colleges are trying to figure out their yield numbers and, and understand if I admit this student, will they actually enroll? This demonstration of interest piece can play um, a greater role, role of importance at some colleges than another. So. Um, what demonstration of interest means is it's truly just um, how a student interacts with the admission office, how they connect with uh, the admission personnel, and how they demonstrate, for lack of a better word, um, that they want to be at that particular in- institution. Um, so, so a couple – oh, go ahead.
2: And, and so we would make the assumption as admissions officers that the more frequently we interact with students or the more sort of compelling our interactions are – the more interested, presumably, a student is going to be in that school. Yes, precisely. Great, great. Um, Now, as far as demonstration of interest is concerned, I I think it's also something that... You know, students see it as an opportunity because so much of the application by the time they're seniors in the fall uh, has essentially been set. You know, Their grades are what they are. Their scores are probably uh, established. Um, they're not going to get to make a huge impact on their application in a lot of ways. They can write their essays, and they can also demonstrate interest um, even at a later stage in the process. Um, what are some of the examples of the ways that students can show their interest in a particular institution?
3: I think particularly uh, as a student gets into their senior year, ways that uh, you could demonstrate your interest are through interviewing. Whether that means coming to campus and sitting with an admission professional or a current student, or interviewing in your local hometown with uh, an alumni representative, I think interviewing is a great way to show a student's interest. Um, certainly, visiting that institution and um, taking the time to attend an information session, to attend a campus visit uh, and tour, whether during the academic week or a lot of colleges will hold over the weekends and some of uh, over some of the holidays like Columbus Day and Veterans Day, they'll hold events on campus um, to, to sort of uh, allow students to come visit their campus um, those are great ways to show interest um, additionally a lot of colleges go out and uh, participate in college fairs throughout the year and so anytime mm-hmm. a student attends a college fair whether it's held at their local high school or or they go to a college fair at, um, you know, a local conference center, you know, in in downtown of their city, Um, walking up to the table for that particular college, filling out an inquiry form, having a conversation with the representative there. Those are also uh, avenues that colleges will use to track demonstration
2: of interest. Right. And, and I remember coming back from those college fairs, the most important thing for me to remember to bring back to the office was my stack of inquiry cards. And I yes. would take those <laughs> cards down to Absolutely. the data entry folks and they would put in all of those students. They put in the student's name and contact information. Um, and we would get inquiry cards from all these different interactions, school visits, um, interviews. We obviously had the student information as well. And, you know, I don't know how it worked at Babson, but at least with Reed, on our reader sheet, we had contact codes for students for every single method of interaction they had had with us. So Mm -hmm. if they visited campus, if they had filled out a a form at a college fair, if they had just sent us an email to ask for information, all of that content was provided. So we were really tracking interest. Was that something that you were also seeing at Babson?
3: Absolutely. Uh, Not necessarily because one method of interaction was better than another, but -hmm. more because we wanted to make sure that we were reaching out to students in an appropriate manner and to see where our time was going to be best best spent for having those meaningful conversations and really connecting with students. But, um, you know, certainly that information was tracked in every applicant's file. So you could always go back and we could see, okay, I first met this student at this college fair two years ago. They had an interview on campus one year ago. Um, and they came for our preview day over Columbus Day this past fall. And so all of that was tracked uh, in a student's application.
2: And that, and that's a lot of interest, by the way, for listeners who are wondering oh, to, yeah. to be showing to a college. <laughs> you know, it's not expected that you go out and do all of these things for every single college that you're applying for. But I think for those that you're really highly interested in, right, you want to demonstrate it through this involvement. Um, now, You know, lots of different institutions divide up the reading load in different ways. Um, You know, some schools um, will just sort of assign groups of applications to admissions officers. Some will have external readers that are hired on a seasonal basis to read applications. Mm -hmm. But I think for most institutions, uh, the admission counselor is going to represent a region of the country, is going to travel to and recruit in that region, and then is also going to read the applications from that particular region, and what that means is that admissions officers are sort of establishing relationships with parts of the country and, and students who live there. Is that something that you, you were doing at Babson, and, and what part of the country were you reading for?
3: Yes, absolutely. So, I had a couple of different territories, but the biggest ones that I traveled to and held throughout the years I was at Babson um, were Texas and Florida. And so it was my job to travel there throughout the year to attend uh, college fairs, to connect with high school counselors, and most importantly, to connect with students in the region uh, to sort of learn more about where they were coming from, what their curriculum was like at their particular high school, and certainly to make sure that we were connecting with students who might be interested in Babson.
2: And I yeah you know, I actually traveled in Texas as well most of the southwestern United States in fact and um, okay. you know I made multiple trips. Back to Texas in a given year, whether it was for interviewing or for the college fairs that, you know, all the college fairs down there take place roughly the same time and Mm -hmm. all the admissions officers come through at that time. And as you do this, you meet with students. You start to develop relationships with students. You see, you know, a student at a college fair and then also at the school visit. And maybe that's a student that you interview later in the week or when you return back. And Mm -hmm. so from, you know, our perspective, we start to see these students showing up again and again. What is your advice for students that you work with about cultivating those relationships with admissions officers uh, or what kind of relationship it really ought to be uh, to improve your application, if there is a way to do it at all?
3: Sure. If there is a way to do it at all is is the key point there. So if it's an institution that has the luxury of, um, you know, sending counselors to a specific region, uh, that they track this demonstration of interest, um, if those variables are all, you know, in your favor, then absolutely, it's it's a great thing to connect with a counselor. I, I think that admission counselors get into this field because we love education and we all want to help students access education and uh help to affect change in, in their life. And so right. uh, at the end of the day, counselors love connecting with students. And certainly when I was traveling for Babson, if, if I interviewed a student um, and I remembered them when I was reading their application, I felt as though um, that was just sort of a nice personal touch I could add to the committee table when advocating for a student to say, you know what, I met with the student, they seemed really interested, um, you know, we had a great conversation Here's why I think they might be a good fit. Um, so I think that, you know, the way to do it is to think of it as um, an opportunity to have a conversation, um, mm-hmm. to ask questions, to learn a little bit more about the school, to make sure that that institution is is the right place for you. Um, and then certainly to remember to think of it as sort of a um, a business interaction. You know, this is a really big part of a student's life. It's education and it's personal, but at the same time, um, your admission counselor should be somebody who you think of um, that you can turn to for advice. It shouldn't be someone that you uh, send a message to on Facebook or you you perhaps, you know, send a text message to. Your admission counselor should be a contact who you reach out to between the hours of nine to five to try and ask questions and and learn more about the institution and certainly, Um, You know, to to advocate for yourself um, in terms of showing that you want to be at that institution. So thinking of it as um, a professional relationship and opportunity to learn more about the institution, I think is the best way to go about it.
2: Yeah, I would totally agree. And, I, you know, most admissions officers, I mean, they're not our target audience for this show, but if I could make advice, give advice to them, I would say, don't develop those kinds of social media relationships with students you're mm-hmm. recruiting either. And I think if you sent a friend request uh, to an admission officer who did your interview, it's it's very likely that it's going to be uh, denied or ignored. Um, and you just want to sort of avoid that level of interaction. You know, send mm-hmm. emails to the professional email account um, you know, it's okay to talk about some of the cool stuff that you discussed in your interview. That sort of personality coming through is really going to be to your advantage when it comes time uh, to, to have your application be reviewed. But I think you also don't want to force it, right? Um, mm-hmm. n- we're naturally going to have different kinds of, uh, you know, connections with people depending on our interests and, and what we like. I mean, I remember um, interviewing a student for Reed and we talked for about 45 minutes about the Grateful Dead, Um, I, I, you know, wouldn't have expected that that conversation would go that direction. And it was a really great sort of connection. I felt like a a peer to peer relationship. Um, but if another student sort of said, oh, I heard that they talked about the Grateful Dead for 45 minutes, I'm going to try and do that too. Um, (laughs) That would probably not benefit, you know, sort of the average uh, student coming into that conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have some memorable students that you sort of worked with or developed relationships with during your time recruiting that really stood out to you as an admission officer?
3: Yeah, I had um a student who I worked with in Florida who um started a small business. It was, you know, something having to do with making ice cream. I, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it still sticks in my in mind to this day. But it was something about uh in the ice cream industry. It was it was small. There was no storefront or anything. It was just sort of a um an example of their Uh, interest in entrepreneurship, which is something that Babson is is well-known for and that they focus on. Um, And I just remember the passion with which the students spoke about their interest in this business and the fact that, you know, this was just their their starting point where they were saying, you know, I'm so excited to continue to learn more because this business isn't really going anywhere, but I just love starting it, and I know that by coming to Babson, I would be able to learn the tools to succeed moving forward. Um, So, you know, that sort of stood out to me. And then the student followed up with a very professional thank you email the next day um, and sort of continued to check in with me and, and send me updates, you know, maybe a, a month or two later saying, hey, Christine, you know, and I'm not sure if you remember me, but I just wanted to let you know I won an award at school. And, you know, I'm not sure if that's something that could be included in my application, but I wanted to, to let you know and, um, you know, just to sort of continue to, to keep connecting with me. And, um I don't know. It's, it's a student I'll, I'll always sort of think of and uh, it makes me smile when I think back to it. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's one of those things where when you have that type of connection and an opportunity to connect with a student, it's a great thing. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, the student's application was still the thing that, that got them admitted to the institution, yes. their transcript, the work that they put into high school. As much as I like them, if, you know, and we had this great conversation and we connected, if the student hadn't been academically admissible, um, that just would have made it even harder to to send, you know, the bad newsletter, the denial letter from there. So, you know, I think there, there are two sides to this demonstrated interest coin.
2: Right, I actually remember my first favorite student from New Mexico, my first year as an admission counselor, and she was great. We had an awesome interview. She sent me emails afterward. It was, it was awesome. And I remember when I sat down to read her application, I had the, we had the old manila folders, and before I opened it up, I sort of said, okay, please don't disappoint me, um, because I, I really wanted her application to be strong, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to advocate for her. Even though I liked her, even though we had a great interview, if the other stuff wasn't there, if the other stuff that we were looking for in terms of academics and testing wasn't there, then she wasn't going to be competitive. And you know, I knew that I couldn't go into a committee room and tell all of my colleagues, well, we had a really great conversation, and I really think she's a cool kid. That, that's not going to hold weight with your colleagues who weren't there for that interview and didn't have that connection. You know, so ultimately, it's a great way to get an admission officer um, to keep an eye out for you but I think probably not going to make the, the big difference um, in terms right. of the, the admission decision. Um, great, I think actually we're right up at the end of time. I, I want to thank you very much for stopping by today, Christine. Um, sure. Are there any, any Thanksgiving dishes you're looking forward to for next week? Mashed potatoes, always. <laughs> That's always <laughs> a great pick. I love it. Awesome. So we're going to head for a break now. Uh, I want you all to stick around for our next segment where we'll be discussing extracurricular activities and resume development for juniors and seniors. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors.
4: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. your child down the road to the decision that really matters the one in the envelope that says yes visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in museums are
0: great places to work and wonderful places to visit but are they essential how can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: welcome back to the show. Uh, my next guest is Abigail
2: Anderson, a blogger and dog owner extraordinaire and a good friend, uh, who, oh, by the way, is also a terrific college admissions counselor. Welcome to the show, Abigail.
5: Thank you for that warm welcome, Ian.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, you and I worked together at Reed for a time, though I don't actually think that you were, we were ever in the room together making decisions on applications. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that's true. So while so, we work at the same school, I think that we offer slightly different perspectives.
2: Um, yeah, I was actually, I, and I was, cu- I was actually curious about that, because my last year reading, I think, was just before your first year reading, and I'm interested correct. in hearing a little bit about your perspective on you know, the value of extracurricular activities, because I never got a chance to hear what you thought in that committee room. Um, what do you think about extracurriculars and how they play a role in the application process?
5: Well, you know, because we worked at a liberal arts school, which really, you know, is a holistic reading process, it probably doesn't differ, my opinion probably doesn't differ too much from your opinion. But my main focus when I was reading through that list of, what is it, 10 extracurricular activities that are on the right. common application, was the answer to answer the question, what is this student going to bring to our campus? And what will they gain from being on our campus? So, Um, I wanted to see students who demonstrated a passion for something. We talked a a lot about how that could be about pretty much anything. It could be about Pokemon or reading or the trumpet or the Boy Scouts. Um, But we really wanted students who were passionate and willing to share their passion uh, outside of the classroom.
2: Right. and, And that word passion, I think, is one that we often see used um, in admissions offices. It was definitely extremely prevalent at Reed. I, yeah. I don't think that that means necessarily that students have to be able to answer the question, what is your passion? You might just think about it as, what do you like to do? Uh, or if you exactly. had a lot of extra time, how would you how would you spend that time? Um, exactly.
5: Exactly. So, and you're right. I actually think that passion can be a really overwhelming word and anxiety inducing word. And I actually made a vow not to use it. And here I am on the radio using it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fine, because I think that ultimately, that's how it does come out. And, and that is sort of what you get known for. I mean, I think, you know, your grades and your test scores, uh, those are stats. um, But your your biography really comes from your essay, what your teachers say about you and your extracurricular activities, those choices you make, um, and so thats it's really an opportunity to choose things that are connected to your personal identity. Um, so what are colleges really uh, looking for in extracurricular activities? What are they hoping to see? So I think there's
5: been a little bit of a shift since probably mm. you or I applied to college. And when at least when I applied to college, all the rage was being a really well-rounded applicant. So to yeah. be somebody who you know, I played the trumpet and I was on the soccer team and I was in the orchestra and I was a peer leader and I did so many things I can't even imagine the bags under my eyes. I don't know really when I slept and I definitely know why I got a B in math. Um, But we we are definitely now seeing schools shift towards this kind of, I like the term, um, pleasantly lopsided applicant. And so one great way to think about this is An application reader doesn't want to read a thousand applicants who love to do a little bit of everything. They want to think about students who have really gone into depth in an area of interest and shown an ability or a talent or learned a skill that other students might not have the same depth of ability um, to bring to their campus. So, like we say, all campuses need leaders and all campuses need followers and all campuses need musicians and athletes and um, people who are excited about community service and people who are excited about basket weaving and people who are excited about, um, you know, baking in – in sure. their common area, so we're looking for pleasantly lopsided applicants.
2: Yeah, and I mean this is this is absolutely true, and I I really want to make sure that that listeners are are hearing this. And the, the the goal isn't to go out there and identify five or six things that are going to you know cultivate every single aspect of what you could be, but instead to think about the one or two things that you really are going to love to do, and take the time to really invest yourself in those things because, you know, that becomes what you're known for when it's time to read Mm -hmm. your application. And and it's also, I think, should make you feel a little bit more empowered as a student to spend your time doing the stuff that you like rather than the stuff that you think you need to do in order to get into college. Right.
5: Precisely. Um, And I love hearing that from another colleague. I think what's really important and something that I will always say to families is, is, If you don't like running, that's okay. You don't need to go join the track team. If you don't like doing community service, that's fine. Your mom doesn't need to wake you up at 7 in the morning on Saturday to go down to the food pantry. You can really focus on the things that you love to do, but I would encourage students to find different ways to do the things they love to do. So that sounds a little vague, but um, if you love computer games? Well, can you learn to code? Could you start a coding club? Could you develop um, a mentoring program for other young students interested in STEM um, and computer science and video games? And so you can take something you love and expand on it in many different ways. And I think that's something that demonstrates that depth and also, and here's that dreaded word, uh, passion even further for the reader of your
2: application and and that's but that's fine because you know you have different elements of who you are you have different ways of right. solving problems right. and and so you can use the thing that you love to demonstrate those different aspects of your your mm-hmm. personality now you know the the topic for today is you know ostensibly how students can get involved at a, a later date in their high school career and most of the students that you know, come into my office are already first or second semester juniors. Maybe they're, uh, you know, coming in over the summer before their senior year. Um, and you know, a lot of students will come in and and their extracurricular profile feels a little bit thin, and they're really concerned about how that's going to present to college admissions offices. So, mm-hmm. what would you say to a student who, you know, let's start with the the junior? Um, who maybe hasn't been involved in a whole lot, who has dabbled in a couple of things freshman and sophomore year, but hasn't really committed to anything yet. Um, what are some of the questions that you might ask to a student to get them thinking about the best place to invest their time?
5: Well, I think I'd start by saying, I think it's a really legitimate concern to have and one that can pretty pretty easily be worked on in junior and senior years. Um, the first thing, I think the student And the counselor needs to begin by asking if the student really isn't involved. Um, There are a lot of things that I love to see in that activity list that students don't readily think about including. Um, Family commitments are a big one. If you pick up your younger sibling from school every day and take him or her home and Make them a snack and make sure they get a homework. Their get their homework done. That's absolutely an extracurricular activity and something I want to hear about. Um, if you are really involved in a community group or a faith-based group, you should be including time spent there as well. And the one that's probably most often overlooked are part-time jobs. Um, If you work 10 to 15 hours a week or 5 to 10 hours a week, that's a significant commitment, as much or more so than a varsity sport at most schools. And that should definitely be something that's included in your activity section. So I would start with saying, are we really, really um, encapsulating everything that you're involved with outside of the 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. of the high school day?
2: Right. And and actually, when I start working with with my students on identifying the things that they're involved in, I I want them to be as exhaustive as possible. I say write down a list of every single thing that you do. I don't care how organized it is. I don't care if it's connected with school. I don't care if it's, you know, I bake cakes once a week, whatever it is put it down there and let's identify whether those things are ultimately important to making sure that a college admissions officer understands who you are. So start big and then tighten as opposed to starting with a really narrow definition of what constitutes extracurricular activity and trying Mm -hmm. to sort of expand it.
5: What a great idea. I like that idea because then you really can't leave anything out. I can't tell you the number of times that I've read recommendations or um, school reports from guidance counselor that mention activities a student is doing that they didn't put in their their own extracurricular activity section and so I would have to go back and kind of fill it in for them that was right. really saddening um, right. and then I think there are there are also ways to think further about so your original question was you know how do I How do I develop that depth? And it's okay to stop doing some things after 9th and 10th grade. It's okay to um, discontinue your participation in a club or an activity. That's totally normal and totally fine. As long as you're doing that to free up time to really devote towards uh, another activity. Um, So just as we say that curriculum should be increasingly rigorous, well, your extracurricular activity should at least maintain about the same amount of importance in your, in your schedule or in your day to day life. But it's right. okay to say, well, I really love making art or I'm a really talented baker and to say, I, if I want to spend my time doing that, I'm going to try to spend my time Doing that in a more structured or formal way, so maybe you open an Etsy shop, or you start baking um, your sweet treats for a local community project that you're really involved with, and you want to raise money for. So turning your your the things you spend your time doing and love doing in your downtime into a more structured activity is a great way to increase. Um, that extracurricular activities
2: list. Right. Um, I was actually, I was working with a student this summer uh, or, or bass, back into the past and uh, started in the junior year and he was really interested in art and design but hadn't done anything beyond art classes at his school. Um, be, he was really into it and so he started submitting artwork for juried exhibitions um, and actually won a contest. He looked Whoa. for summer design programs that he could get into so that he could spend his time over the summer really investigating and pursuing this interest um, and started taking art classes from uh, you know professional art teachers, sort of outside of his school and just in the span of, you know, a summer plus a couple of months, was able to develop sort of this impactful resume that showed that this was something he really cared about and was willing to invest the time and energy towards, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating that that ability. Uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. can be done in a very short period of time if you start to think about the full range of opportunities out there.
5: Right. Exactly. Um, I think also, too, that it's okay to turn to the people around you and say, what should I be doing? Um, Your principal, your class advisor, there are people at your school who are probably, or um, at your parents' work, maybe, who are definitely looking for help. Can you get involved and spearhead a fundraiser or a food drive? At this time of year, it's a really timely um, period to do a coat drive anything that might benefit families in your community. And principals and class advisors are are keenly aware of all the things they feel like they should be doing, but they don't have the time to do. So if you can find something that can help them and initiate something new, and then if you're a junior, even carry that on into your senior year, that's an excellent way to get involved in a way that um, is less uh, obvious than joining a new club or starting a
2: new team. Right. And, and some students will say, look, I don't want this to look like I just started this activity
1: mm-hmm. for my
2: college applications. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, it's unavoidable if you're a junior that right. if you start something that you're only going to be able to do it for two years. But it's much better for you to have started it and developed that interest in it than to not do it at all. Um, exactly. And, and, you know, that comes to sort of, a, you know, a, a recommendation that I'd like to get your opinion on, which is some students that just have done nothing. And maybe it's because they've been a little bit lazy or maybe it's just because they've been focusing so much time and energy on their studies. Uh, they haven't had the extra bandwidth to really get involved. What would you say to a student who's a junior now, you know, in November who has really nothing on their extracurricular activities resume, where should, they, where should they get started, or how should they think about using the time that they still have in front of them?
5: Well, I think it's really important to think about everything that you are working toward. So you've been working so hard to get to college and to maybe pursue a specific career, and are there other things you can be doing at this point in time to help you decide what that future is going to look like. So can you do some job shadowing? Can you, and I'm not talking about, you know, a month of job shadowing. That sounds like a really tough thing to even figure out with a professional. I'm not sure they would even know what to do with a high school student for a month. But can you spend um, a morning with a teacher or an afternoon with a journalist or um, can you scrub in and see a surgery and, and know what it feels like to wake up at five thirty in the morning and be in, uh, in surgery at 6am. Um, yeah. and so these job shadows could be two or three hours long. They could be lunch. They could be getting a hot chocolate with somebody you really admire, but really feeling like you are working towards, um, educating yourself about something in your future that you're feeling excited about. Um, a really That's easy thing to great. do at this point as a junior is to go get a job. Um, can you find ten hours in your schedule um, to work at the grocery store, bagging groceries? Can you be a gas station attendant? Can you serve ice cream over the summer? There are um, quite a few job opportunities, part-time job opportunities, seasonal job opportunities where 15-, 16-, 17-year-olds, depending on the state you live in, are really in demand. And um, you can't start a sport six months before you apply to college, but you can definitely start a job. And to me, um, having a job was something when I read applications that demonstrated really strong characteristics that I think anybody reading college applications would love to see. Things like responsibility and time management, learning to take direction, um, having a a really serious after-school commitment. And so there are definitely things you can do that are concrete that you can start six to eight months before you apply.
2: Yeah, I think that that's really huge to think about these short packets of time, three months playing football is not going to be as impactful as three months doing a job. Um, But you also want to take a look at the calendar in front of you and say, I've got a winter break coming up where I have two or three weeks off. I have a summer coming up where I have three, three and a half months off. And I can find ways to fill that time that are going to demonstrate that I really care about something. Um any any sort of final recommendations for for juniors or even seniors at this stage of the things that they're going to be thinking about I know it's hard for seniors because their applications are basically you know finished at this point but is there any recommendation you'd give there
5: I would come I just want to come back to the idea and reiterate once again that there is no one activity that any reader is homing your application to see if you've participated in and you should really feel like you are empowered to pursue the things that you want to pursue. So again you don't have to play a sport you don't have to do community service um, and that students should really feel empowered to pursue what they want to pursue when it comes to extracurricular activities.
2: And and I would really reiterate that point that you made about trying to find answers to questions that are going to lead you in the right direction professionally. So after Mm -hmm. you're finished with high school, what is it that you want to do? What do you want to study in college? That kind of information is helpful, whether it makes it to your resume or not. So, you know, think about these extracurricular opportunities as having real value beyond just what it looks like on, on your application. Um, Great
5: point. Great. great. point.
2: Thanks so much for your time, Abigail. Are, Are you sticking around Portland next week for Thanksgiving or are you heading back East?
5: I am heading down to Nevada.
2: Oh, interesting. Heading
5: down to Lake Tahoe area with my puppy. Yeah.
2: That'll be great. Well, uh, enjoy yourself. And uh, and thanks very much for your time today. Um, Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Happy almost
5: holidays.
2: (laughs) Thank you. So, folks, we're 66.6666, but I could go on forever, uh, percent of the way through today's show. We've got the last third coming up after the break. If you're interested in hearing a little bit about the value of the FAFSA and other financial aid forms, even if you won't qualify for aid, don't move. We'll be right back.
4: So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in.
0: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology
1: are listening to getting in a college coach conversation to reach elizabeth heaton or her guest today please call in to one 472 that's one 866 472 or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com now back to the show hey welcome back for the final segment of today's
2: show Over the last couple of weeks, I've been manning the College Coach table at benefits fairs here at Silicon Valley and all over the West. Uh, And when I tell some parents about our finance experts here at College Coach, they often say they don't need our advice because they know they're not going to qualify for aid. Uh, My colleague Shannon Vasconcelos, former senior financial aid officer at BU and Tufts, is here to tell us a little bit about why those parents might be wrong and the role that the FAFSA can still play in the college application process, even for wealthier families. Shannon, welcome to the show.
6: Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here.
2: I'm really glad to have you. And as I was saying uh, you know, b- before we went on the air, this is actually something that I wish I'd, I had a little bit of a better grasp on so mm-hmm. I could talk to those families um, when they come up to the, the college coach table at these benefits fairs. So I guess the, the fundamental question is here, does everybody everybody, need to <laughs> fill out the FAFSA?
6: No. Absolutely not. FAFSA is not a requirement to um, be admitted to any college, Um, so if you don't want to fill out the FAFSA, absolutely nothing is making you. Uh, Colleges would be more than happy to accept you without giving you any money. Uh, They would be happy if if you're willing to pay the the full bill. Um, So you absolutely do not have to fill out a FAFSA if you don't want to. Um, I think that there are a few reasons, though, why why many people should fill out a FAFSA, even the people who think that they're not going to qualify for aid. I sure. think that there's still a few reasons why they may want to consider filling out a FAFSA.
2: Okay, so so I've gone online, and I've used the net price calculator, which you know our, our colleagues on the finance team actually talked about, I think, just a couple of weeks ago on the radio show. Which you can find that in the archives. But I've gone yeah. on the net price calculator, and it looks like I'm not going to qualify... Um, you know, but I'm not. What's what's sort of the first reason that I might still fill out the FAFSA even if I think I'm not going to qualify through one of those net price calculators?
6: Yeah. So the first reason I would say is kind of along the lines of you never know until you try. Um, now, mm-hmm. net price calculators have 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 made it a little bit easier to know if, in fact, you are going to qualify for aid, um, but they're not perfect. Um, so. You know, I found some calculators are better than others. Um, calculators don't work for everyone, um, like folks in um, divorced households um, where the college is asking for income from two different households. They don't mm-hmm. work. Also, uh, the, the information, uh, the results you get from the calculator are, are only as good as your inputs. So if you don't Answer questions exactly right. So, for example, when they ask you for what your assets are on the calculator, if you report your retirement accounts, retirement accounts are actually not, uh, do not feed into the financial aid calculation. So, if you don't give them quite the right information, it can overestimate your contribution. So, you know, I think the calculators are a great tool, but they're not perfect. They don't work for everyone. Um, And and you have have to be fairly.
2: fairly savvy to know all the ins and outs about the, the way that those different numbers fit in there. It's not just a exactly. matter of knowing exactly and you definitely, what definitely If you are going to
6: base your kind of decision on, on net price calculator results, be absolutely sure you're filling out a calculator at each school you're applying to. Don't do it at just one school and they mm-hmm. tell you you're not eligible for aid, so you decide that you're not going to apply for aid anywhere. Um, schools can differ tremendously in, in terms of uh, what kind of resources they have, Uh, based on their price, kind of who qualifies for aid or not. Um, So, you know, uh, calculators are a good tool, but but not perfect, and make sure you're doing the calculator for every college. Uh, And if you're not using a calculator at all, some people just kind of assume, you know, uh, I have enough money, you know, they're not going to give me aid, or, you know, my neighbor didn't get any financial aid, and we make about the same amount of money. You know, people aren't always the best judge of their own, Neediness, (laughs) Neediness, <laughs> you know. I've met yeah. very, very rich people who feel quite poor. <laughs> you know, if they're um, perhaps living in a high cost area like the Silicon Valley, I'm sure you're well aware of that. Um, yeah. You know, or other people, you know, have quite a moderate income but are living within their means, so they feel, you know, pretty well off. But in fact, according to the calculations, they they can actually be quite needy at some schools and would qualify for a lot of financial aid. So that, that's really kind of one reason. You, you really just never know until you try. Gotcha.
2: So let's, let's say I'm a pretty savvy user and you know maybe yeah. I'm a finance educator at College Coach and I know how to use <laughs> these net price calculators and so I know what my eligibility is now. Is there still a yeah. reason for me to fill out the FAFSA?
6: Yeah, I think that you. some people may want to have a financial aid application on file as sort of a just-in-case, in case case you experience a change in financial circumstances. The big one can be a job loss. Um, So you may not need any financial aid right now, but might you at some point during the course of your child's uh, college career. Now, this may not be an issue at many, many schools um, because you do have to reapply for financial aid each year. So at many schools, it's absolutely fine, you know, if you didn't apply for the first year, but then, you know, you lose your job and you have to apply for a future year. Or, you know, God forbid the change in circumstances happens mid-year and you actually need some financial aid, you know, for the second semester. At some schools, that's okay. At some schools, they'll let you file a financial aid application later, um, and, and it will make absolutely no difference. But at some schools, they are very, very tough. And if you don't apply for financial aid at the beginning, when you're first applying, you have just lost the right to ever get any financial aid during your child's four years at the school, um, no matter what happens in your financial circumstances. Um, There are some schools that are brutal like that. Um, So 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 even if I don't
2: qualify, I want a form to be on file with them just in case something changes because that, that... Gets me sort of into their financial aid pipeline. Is that sort of how that that yep, works?
6: yep, that's okay. exactly right. And even you know, even if you know it's okay to file a financial aid application later, um, sometimes you know circumstances come up at the last minute uh, and kind of um, as sort of a. Um, uh, there's processing time. So even if uh, a school does let you file a financial aid application later because you have a change in circumstances, you've got to wait for the the FAFSA to go through. It gets to the school. They've got to do some review. And, you know, a whole lot of stuff has to happen before you can actually see any financial aid. If you've already got the form on file, things can go much, much, much quicker. Uh, in a worst-case scenario, you, you could get a student loan almost instantly, you know, within a couple of days. So if it's something comes up at the last minute, and you can't pay that bill, and they're not letting your kid register for classes until that bill is paid, you've got a FAFSA on file. You can get a loan pretty instantly. So hey, that loan um,
2: question is an interesting one because I might not yeah. qualify for financial aid, but I still am not – I just can't pay out of pocket you know, the cost right. that's going to be on the tuition bill um, you know, every year. And so loans are definitely going to be in my, in my future. Uh-huh. How does the FAFSA sort of play into the student loan process?
6: Right So if you want your child or you as a parent to be able to borrow any of the government student loans, you have to file a FAFSA. and there are absolutely student loans and parent loans that are not need-based. You can be you know Donald Trump and get a student loan or a parent loan. Um, so and the government Student loans tend to be kind of the more favorable loans that are out there as opposed to just kind of going to a private bank and getting a loan. The government loans, uh, for the, the students at least have a, a decent interest rate, um, particularly when you're considering this is a loan for a student with no job and no credit. Um, the government gives loans at a pretty low interest rate. Um, the government loans also have some protections built in that you're not going to see in the private market um, God forbid anything were to happen, like the death or permanent disability of the student or the parent borrower, the government loans totally disappear. Um, they're canceled, um, whereas that does not happen with a private bank loan. Mm-hmm. Those loans live on, get passed on to you know, the estate family members. Um, there are protections built in, like if you ever come across you know, hard economic times, uh, you, know, you lose your job, you need to defer payments for a while. Um, they let you do that with government loans. There are income-based repayment plans, so if you have high debt compared to your income, um, you never your payments never get too high. Um, so there's there are a lot of benefits to the government loans. Um, so if you think you have to borrow at all to pay for college, you probably do want to to in fact take advantage of the government loans, and you have to file a FAFSA to take advantage of them. And I've even talked to many uh, quite wealthy families who um, really don't need to borrow to pay for college at all, but they actually choose to have their kids um, take out a small amount of government student loans as a way to give their kid a little bit of skin in the game, to have them, you know, take responsibility for for some of the cost of their education. They feel that, you know, their child will perhaps take this education a little bit more seriously if they know that they're paying for it. Um, so I've seen that uh, a lot. And then some families will kind of have an arrangement with their child where, you know, if you graduate in four years or if you get a certain GPA, something like that, we'll pay off the loans for you. Uh, but they want to give this, the child a little bit of skin in the game uh, up front. So filling out the FAFSA uh, is really the only way to do that with the government loans.
2: Interesting. Interesting. You know, the, the final thing that I sort of think about here that I've I think I've heard y'all say over on the finance side uh, of our team, uh, but I'm not quite sure about, is that sometimes having the FAFSA is a necessity to qualify for merit scholarships. Um, Is that true, or have I been saying the right thing?
6: (laughs) Yeah, so it is usually not true. At most schools, there's two separate pots of money, one for need-based aid, one for merit scholarships, and you do not have to file the FAFSA to be considered for most of the merit scholarships at most schools, but there okay. are certainly some schools that require the FAFSA to be considered for merit scholarships, uh, often because the scholarships require you to be a U.S. citizen, and the, uh, by filling out the FAFSA, they verify your citizenship. Um, also, by filling out the FAFSA, you've sort of nominated yourself as someone for whom the money matters. So there actually are some schools that have specific merit scholarships that they restrict to people who have filed the FAFSA who have not qualified for need-based aid but were maybe just out of range um, and they know that the money matters to these people uh, because Mm -hmm. that's why they filed the FAFSA. That was the indication that the money matters to them. Um, And so they will give them an actual scholarship. They actually have scholarship money reserved, essentially merit scholarship money, So it's for strong students, but for strong students who have applied for aid, but not qualified. I've seen them called uh, FAFSA filing scholarships. Um, Interesting. Those are absolutely out there. So just to make sure that kind of you're not leaving any potential money like that on the table, filing the FAFSA may be a good idea. Or if you really don't want to, at least call the schools that you're applying to and double check with their admissions or financial aid office. Uh, and ask them, is the FAFSA required for any merit scholarships at your school? If they say no, then you know you don't have to file it. Uh, but just to throw it out there so people know there are some schools that do have some merit scholarships where they need the FAFSA.
2: And, and that sort of gets at a, another point here, which is that you know, submitting the FAFSA, if you don't qualify, isn't going to hurt you. Or indicating that you'd like to apply for financial aid even if you don't qualify, isn't going to necessarily hurt you uh, because colleges are making an assessment of what your family can afford to pay when they're determining whether you take a financial aid slot. So it's kind of interesting to hear you say that there's even a case where not qualifying but barely is to your advantage (laughs) because you might get a little bit of a scholarship from a school. That's exactly Uh, right. Um, Any final words of advice uh, for for our listeners out there just in the last uh, 10 seconds, 10, 15 seconds?
6: No, just to reiterate that uh, I know a lot of people are scared that a financial aid application will hurt them, and it very, very rarely does. So do not let that hold you back um, from applying for financial aid, certainly if you need it. And, again, even if you don't really need it, there are those few reasons why you might want to apply. So don't be afraid to apply. That's the bottom line.
2: Thanks so much for your time, Shannon. Uh, And I think that that's some great food for thought for families out there who are considering whether or not to apply for the FAFSA when the calendar rolls into the new year, January 1st. So thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today, but I hope you've enjoyed the show. You continue to listen to our different hosts here in the hosting chair. um, And I know I enjoy being a part of your day, whether you're listening to us live from your desk or in your commute or walking the dog around the block. Uh, If you'd like to listen back to any of our past shows, or if you missed the live broadcast for any reason, you can download past episodes from iTunes or dive into the archives for older topics. I want to put in one more plug uh, for our listeners to go to the uh, web and fill out a survey about our radio show as well. That's at www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey. Uh, Next week is Thanksgiving. We'll be re-airing one of our most popular shows. Is it better to get an A in a college prep course or a B in an honors course? You can tune in and gobble up all kinds of great college admissions content alongside friends and family. Think of it as a healthy side dish to pair with mashed potatoes and green bean casserole. Uh, From our family to yours, have a great holiday, and I'll see you back live in two weeks on December 3rd.